I think it was, I think it was, if I remember rightly, the summer of 1999, and the location was a couple hours southeast of Portland, Oregon. Uh, we lived in Portland at the time when I was going to seminary, and I was about to start my third year of seminary, and we knew that the odds were quite good that we would not be staying in Oregon, that we'd move back to the Midwest. So... This, uh, this summer of 1999 was our likely last summer in Oregon, uh, at least for the foreseen future, and it has, we haven't been back for a summer in its entirety yet. It was the first, last summer with like mountains all around us, like we, we could look out our uh, window and see the remnants of Mount St. Helens, and that's just kind of cool. It's like two days a year, because the rest of the days it's raining, but for two days a year, you could see that, and it's, it was fun. So last summer, last summer in, in Oregon, I decided I needed to get out to the mountains for an extended backpacking trip. We'd done some hikes, we'd uh, visited, drove around the mountains a lot, but I needed to spend a longer trip out backpacking in the mountains. So my dad and my brother-in-law, Paul, came out to Oregon, flew out, and we decided we're going to do the Timberline Trail, which is a 42-mile-long hike around Mount Hood. It circumnavigates Mount Hood, dipping in and out of treeline. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful trail, and it stays about 7,000, 6,000 feet in the Cascade Mountains there. So, before living in Oregon, I had lived the entirety of my life in Michigan until, until we moved to Oregon for seminary. And even while living in Oregon, we were just about at sea level while we lived in Portland. Marianne and I had done some hiking in the mountains, but when you live in Michigan for 23 years, the word elevation usually refers to a, the, the height of a farmer's corn silo and not the height of a mountain. Um, elevation in Michigan, or at least in particularly southern, central Minnesota, I mean, it's not much, right? There's not a lot of elevation going on here. So we were going to go 42 miles around Mount Hood. We planned four days of hiking, which would allow us a relatively leisurely pace and time to enjoy the views, the waterfalls, the flowers, the unbelievable scenery of the Mount Hood wilderness area. It was a great trip. It was, I just can remember so many, so much of it, even though it was a long time ago, but it was hard. It was really difficult. I mean, these, these Midwestern lungs find the air at 7,000 feet, which isn't that high, I know, but we, I find it just to be quite deficient in oxygen. Um, it's, it's not like here. It's just, man, I'm just gasping for breath at some of those hikes. And, but this, the, the trail just, it's never flat. There's no flatness in the Timberline Trail. You're either going straight up a giant hill, mountain, or you're like balancing yourself and trying not to ruin your knees as you stumble down the trail. By the end of the trip, we were overjoyed. It had been a wonderful trip, but we were exhausted. And furthermore, when you go on a backpacking trip like this and you carry everything on your back, um, you, you, you don't bring a lot of like really great-tasting food. Um, you eat lightweight because you've got to carry that 42 miles or so around the mountain, depending on when you eat it. So dehydrated meals, oatmeal for breakfast. I mean, weight is the enemy. You want stuff that's light. So there's not a lot of really, really good meat, bread, vegetables, that sort of thing. And after four days or five days of rice and oatmeal and dehydrated chicken, we were famished. We were ready for a good, hearty, greasy meal. And so we headed down the mountain. We had nowhere in particular in mind, but we were going to find something. And approximately 30 minutes from the trailhead, the first place to eat that we saw that looked like it was going to fit our demands was in a town called Zigzag, Oregon. I believe it was called the Zigzag Inn, but this was 25 years ago. I don't remember the restaurant's name, but I do remember the burger. It's a half pound of ground beef topped with a thick ham steak topped with multiple slices of cheese, topped with an over-easy egg. It's the first time I've ever had an egg on a burger, and thankfully not the last. It's delicious. And on top of that was a few slices of good, thick bacon. This was exactly the meal that my father and brother-in-law and I were looking for. 
and there was no way we were going to split this thing. Not one of us had any problem putting away this heart attack in a bun. And once that monstrosity hit our table, wild horses could not drag us away from it. We were going in with reckless abandon. You could not stop me from eating that burger. And I'll be honest, I have never enjoyed a meal as much as I enjoyed that hamburger. Like, that's a true thing. Like, there was, it's the perfect hamburger for the perfect time, the perfect conditions, everything was right. My wilderness cooking skill has increased considerably in the last quarter century, so I no longer come out of the woods with a zombie-like obsession for meat anymore. But there I did, and there it was. There it was, the Mount Hood burger. I don't know if you've ever been that hungry. You remember the ache in your gut? <laughs> like you just oh, so ready for a good meal. But also it just focuses your mind in a way that you can't think about anything else. You're so hungry. If you ever read the journals of uh, Holocaust survivors or those who have been in prisons where food was scarce, it's amazing how much they talk about their dreams of food, and their, their constant thought is on food. How do I get any sort of food? I've never been in that condition, but reading the stories of those sorts of, uh, of situations is, is hard, and I can't imagine being that obsessed with food, except when we came off of Mount Hood. Now, the story in the first book of Samuel started with the prophet Samuel, his birth, his mother. And eventually, reluctant King Saul kind of moved into the spotlight. He became the main character in the narrative in 1 Samuel. But let's just be honest, Saul has been a huge disappointment, right? A huge disappointment. In chapter 13, Saul oversees an unlawful sacrifice, and he's consequently told by God's prophet Samuel that your kingdom shall not continue. Your line is cut off. Someone else is coming in. But Saul still has the throne, and so he's still kind of on the throne, but we're wondering, how is this all going to happen? Someone else will take the throne. It's not going to be Saul. Saul's line will come to an end. And so chapter 14 then brings us Saul's fearless and strong, daring, brave, bold son, Jonathan, who as we saw last week, almost what single-handedly, almost single-handedly, he had his armor bearer with him, almost wipes out an entire Philistine garrison with the help of the Lord. Meanwhile, King Saul, dad, was avoiding the fight under the shade of a pomegranate tree, likely sipping some of that sweet, sweet pomegranate juice. Saul has a way of just kind of hanging back. This is actually pomegranate juice. I wanted a chalice, but this is the closest thing I could find in my house yesterday. Good old pomegranate juice, just nothing, nothing like it. Saul just has this way of avoiding difficult situations. Um, we'll see it again when the Philistines send out a warrior named Goliath. You've probably heard of him. Saul kind of finds a way not to face Goliath. And some people just know how to avoid a hard fight. They'll, they'll throw a rock at a hornet's nest and then suspiciously just be gone once the hornets come, right? And as we get into our passage, Saul was hoping to avoid the fight and keep nursing his goblet of pomegranate juice in the shade, but Jonathan started beating the hornet's nest. And now, now the battle comes to Saul. So if you're in your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 14 is where we're going to be, but I want to read the last verse of chapter 13 first. <clears throat> oh, sorry, no, we're going to be in 20, verse 24 of chapter 14, but I want to read verse 23 before we enter into verse 24. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read kind of passage by passage rather than read the entirety of our text this morning. We're just going to kind of walk through it chunk by chunk. So just be ready for that and prepared and unsurprised when I take a break and do a little explanation or illustration here. So, after Jonathan went up against the garrison, climbed the hill, routed the Philistines, verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Now, verse 24, we'll start here. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, 
Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, let's pause right there. We have this next chunk is kind of an unfamiliar story to many of you, I'm guessing. It's not David and Goliath. You know that story. This one, a little bit more... Um, a little bit more hidden in the text. It's not one that comes up too often. So I want to kind of progress through this and feel the tension of the story and the plot twist as we work through the story. Here is Jonathan. Goes up against the Philistines. Provokes them. And according to verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. The Philistines were so confused by Jonathan's surprise attack, which wasn't really surprise attack, but kind of was. You can read that passage some other time. The Philistines were so confused that they attacked each other and started killing each other. It's just this rout, this chaotic battle, and eventually it spreads, and other Israelites kind of come out of hiding and join the battle against the Philistine. The, the thing kind of swells up, and eventually it comes where Paul or Saul is sipping his pomegranate juice to pomegranate cove. The battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Saul and the Israelite, Israelite army were trying to kind of stay away from the Philistines. Now they have to take up their arms and join the fight. So the battle comes to the Israelites. King Saul is just a tragic figure in the book of First and First Samuel. He was thrust into the role reluctantly, and he just seems so confused and lost most of the time. He's impulsive. He's impatient, he's jealous, and he's just lost as the leader Israel needed. And when the battle finally makes its way to him, the battle that he should have been leading, he blurts out a confusing and um, seemingly hasty oath. He basically says, we've got a lot of fighting ahead of us, boys, so no one gets to eat until I win. Now, Hungry soldiers need food. Need food. You can't fight on an empty stomach. Just like hungry hikers need gigantic hamburgers. Some, you just need food, right? They, you need food in order to go to the battle. Some commentators have tried to justify Saul's oath by infusing it with kind of a holy intention, but I don't think the text allows this. Saul tastes an opportunity to commandeer a glorious victory from his son's boldness and the Philistine confusion and God's sovereignty over this situation. Saul says, I can get in on that. And so he tries to rally his men with this rash vow. His vow, far from being holy and pure, was rash, it was hasty, it was unthoughtful, it was perhaps even superstitious, and I think it was as the text will tell us, and Jonathan will tell us, it was stupid. It was dumb. H.L. Ellison comments that Saul's oath belongs to those superstitions which think that God is more likely to listen if men indulge in unnecessary self-denial. If God withheld his answer, it was because he often takes our stupidities as seriously as we mean them. If if we just deny ourselves, then I'll have the victory, is what Saul may have been thinking. When I was a kid, we used to always, uh, my sister and I, just the two of us in our family, we used to always compete to be the first one to the car or to the door or to anywhere, right? Kids just do that. you just like, I'm going to be the first one to get to there. And usually as you got a jump start on your sibling on the race to the door, you turned around to, to the one who didn't know that there was a race going on, and you say, last one to the car is a what? All right, I'm glad you do that in Minnesota too, because that's what we did in Michigan. It was a rotten egg. Last one to the car is a rotten egg. I don't know why we said this oath or curse. I don't I don't know the origins of it. I didn't study that. Some of you may this afternoon, and I'd be interested in your findings. But I, don't, I also don't remember ever really fearing that I would be transformed into a rotten egg if Jenny somehow arrived at the car before I did. I also didn't remember ever really wishing that she would. Well, that's not true. Sometimes I did wish that. We can get into that some other time. But that statement, it did motivate me to move, right? I, 
I mean, I didn't think I was going to be a rotten egg, but I also didn't want to be last, right? So I wanted to win. Well, I hope that our, if our rotten egg curse was actually effective in producing what it proclaimed, we would not have been so hasty to offer it. Saul doesn't hold back on uttering a curse on anyone who eats before the battle is finished. He was supposed to lead according to God's law and enforce God's law. And part of God's law in the book of Leviticus says this. If anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, but then learn of it and realize their guilt, when anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what they have sinned. And then, according to the law in Leviticus, they must bring a female lamb or a goat, and the priest will sacrifice it for them as a guilt offering. So, be careful if you know the law that that Saul is supposed to be leading the people to obey. If you know the law, be careful to make these hasty vows, or you're out a lamb or a goat, which is a big deal back in that day. And probably would be a big deal if we had any lambs or goats today. You don't want that to happen, so... Be careful with your hasty vows. A few kings later, after Saul's ultimate demise, Solomon would write in Proverbs 20, 25, It is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. To reflect only after making vows. Saul probably did not reflect a lot before uttering this vow on the eve of battle. Solomon also advised in the book of Ecclesiastes, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, some of you need to listen to this, let your words be few. Now, side note, Solomon, who had 700 wives, may have been wiser if he heeded his own advice about rash vows, but that's for another time and place as well. Exhibit A, though, of why vows should not be hastily made, here we are, 1 Samuel 14, 24. Saul, who probably thought, the Philistines are killing each other, we're about to mop out, so last one to the battle is a rotten egg. What could go wrong? What could go wrong with something like that? This is going to be great, Saul thinks. Well, plenty can go wrong, as it turns out. Verse 24 uh, continues, so none of the people had tasted food. Not good, okay? Can't fight on an empty stomach. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, dripping from the trees, right? But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan, who comes in a little later here with his staff, Jonathan... Uh, and you, as soon as you hear that, but Jonathan, after everybody else fears the oath, you're like, uh-oh, this, this is not going to go well for poor Jonathan here, is it? No, it's not. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put the tip of the staff, I did have some honey here, I'm not going to actually do it, but he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright, like that. I needed that. I just went through this crazy battle. Well, why didn't Jonathan hear the oath in the first place? Do you remember why? He he was fighting the Philistines. He's up on the mountain fighting the Philistines. He's out there in the battle rather than sipping pomegranate juice under the tree. Now, if you're like me, the mid-80s found you quite often in arcades playing games like Gauntlet, where you and up to three others fight a ridiculous amount of enemies. Anybody remember this game? Yes. Good man right there. The rest of you, repent. Repent. It is one of my favorite console video games there, man. So you fight this just ridiculous amount of enemies. It's a constant battle and warfare and all that kind of stuff. At At times, the game was so chaotic that you would be surrounded by enemies and just overwhelmed. And I imagine that this was what Jonathan's day had been like. It was just him and his armor bearer up against the Philistine hordes, right? And he's just fighting and fighting. So he comes back to the group that has been, you know, sipping their pomegranate juice. 
The enemy blood is all over him probably. He's sweaty and nasty and dirty. He's probably got a few at least minor wounds on him. He's a wreck. But he's victorious. He's victorious. He's won the battle. And at that moment, for a soldier, that means you're ready to eat. He's hungry. He's ready to eat anything, right? And so even honey on the ground in the woods, which to me does not sound so appealing, but for a culture that did not have processed sugar, honey was a delight. Like, most of us, honey is kind of a disappointment sweet, right? It's like, eh, that's great, but I'd rather just kind of have some sugary stuff, right? Especially for Americans. But for a culture that did not have white processed sugar, Honey was a treat. It was a delicious, wonderful thing. In fact, you can almost just kind of do a survey of honey in the Bible and just see the word used to describe beauty and glory and abundance, land of milk and honey, all that kind of stuff. So here's Jonathan. He finds the honey. He tastes a little bit, and his eyes just light up. Oh, so good. I needed something. It's that look of satisfaction when famished people get some good food in their belly. Well, honey, you have the land flowing with milk and honey. You have Samson's interesting kill of a lion, which winds up with honey in its corpse. John the Baptist ate ate locusts and wild honey. Um, I did a bit of research on this, but the honey is not the point of 1 Samuel 14. The problem here, the situation we have, is that Jonathan ate. And according to Dad's statement, anyone who eats is cursed. This is not good. Well, maybe, maybe Dad won't find out. At this point, it doesn't seem that Saul knows that Jonathan ate some honey. and It seems like he only ate a little bit, right? How bad could it be? Saul, at this point, doesn't know that his son has brought a curse upon himself. But a good deal of the people did see it, we're told, and they are horrified because they know Jonathan is invaluable. Jonathan is the one who will fight the Philistines. He's the victor here, but it seems he's heading towards a tragic ending. Verse 28 now. Then, one of the people, and there's always some guy, right? There's always some guy. This is that guy. There's one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Jonathan its approval rating is significantly higher than Saul's at this point. Remember, Saul's loafing off with the pomegranate juice. Jonathan's out there killing the enemies. The people are like, uh-oh, what's going to happen here? And Jonathan said, my father has troubled this land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. This is a bad situation, Jonathan realizes. Oaths and vows in that day were not something that you got out of lightly. Jonathan realized he is under a curse and deserves death. So he kind of just says, well, this is just great. Just great, Dad. Thanks a lot. We finally take down the Philistines a notch or two, but I get cursed in the end because of your hasty mouth. What a dumb oath. Who doesn't feed their soldiers before a battle? Would have been better. My father has troubled the land. Well, there's a summary statement of Saul's reign in its entirety right there. Saul, the first king of his name, the first king of Israel, the troubler of the land. But still, maybe, maybe this will all just kind of fade away. I mean, there's, not, there's just some people that know. Maybe people will just kind of let it slide. Don't tell anybody. Keep the news from Saul. Pretend it never happened, maybe. Or maybe other really bad things could stack on top of this. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. Well, that's, that's good, right? The Philistines are bad. They're the bad guys, so there's some victory here. And the people were very faint. I mean, they seem to be faint quite often here. It's not good. It would have been better if they had eaten something. So at the end of the battle, after striking down all the Philistines, the people pounced on the spoil. Love that. Pounced on the spoil. You ever see like a feed an animal that's just super hungry, and they go right at it. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. 
There's no mention of cooking them, right? And the people ate them with the blood. Well, that sounds bad, right? So, yeah, it, it is bad. Way back in Genesis 9, God had told Noah, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood in it. So, well done steaks only, Israelites, okay? Blood symbolizes life. Blood was necessary for the sacrificial system that the Israelites had with God. But hungry soldiers liked to eat. Jonathan ate his honey. The rest of the Israelites, with a veritable smorgasbord of very, very undercooked meats, people are just eating all sorts of forbidden foods here. And nothing works up an undiscerning appetite like killing Philistines, it seems. And so the people ravenously are just on the ground eating bloody carcasses. (laughs) Kind of gross, isn't it? It's impetuous and it's impatient, hasty. Saul, though, Saul, who understands the problem here. After some battle, some, some tattletale informs Saul. Verse 33, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And Saul said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. I mean, there's just all kinds of slaughter going on here, right? And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he built to the Lord. That's an interesting line there because we're well into Saul's reign here. And, and part of you wants to say, way to go, Saul. All right, I think you kind of did something right here. Doesn't it seem like that? I mean, good on you for reminding these ravenous, bloody carnivores about that regulation. I mean, in, in kind of offering them something. Good on you for slowing them down enough that there could be an appropriate offering made. Good on you, Saul, for building that altar, it, it seems. Now, I realize that if you're sensitive to violence, either animal or human violence, this passage is a bit difficult for you. There's some discomfort. Um, I can't think of another place in the Bible where the word slaughter is used so frequently. I can't think of another sermon I've ever preached where I've used the word slaughter so often. It's in the Bible. And at some point in our examination of 1 Samuel, we will examine violence in the Old Testament. It needs to be talked about because there are some difficult things to observe. So, Nate, if you could clear that up before I preach next, that would be really helpful, okay? I can just kind of move on then. Well, I don't want to be dismissive about the bloodiness of the Old Testament. Um, You can't. We will address it. Um, If not in a sermon, then in a post or something on church center, and we'll, we'll need to have that conversation. It's not quite to the peak of uh, slaughter yet, though. There's more coming. For now, though, for now, in our story, animals have been slaughtered. They've been partially eaten by the hungry soldiers. Saul's allowed them, slowed them down long enough to make an altar, but he's not ready to go sit back under the tree again, sipping his pomegranate juice. Verse 36, then Saul said, Let's go down after the Philistines by night. There's still some left, and we'll plunder them until the morning light. Let's not leave a man of them. And they said, Hurrah! No, they said, Do whatever seems good to you. I don't, I don't think that's the reaction Saul wanted. Um, Saul has this like motivational pep talk that he gives, and the people just kind of say, like, Meh, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Saul's not ready for the, the, uh, the battle to stop. There's more. Let's take it to him, boys. We've got him on the run. Let's finish them. And the people respond by saying, all right, whatever. Their answer seems less than enthusiastic. Do whatever seems good to you. Now, there have been a few times where I've told my kids, gang, hey, I got a great idea. We're all going to go sledding today or some activity like it's gonna be awesome let's go get in the car bundle up let's go do it i like coming up with ideas for group activities i don't like it when my children or a youth group look at me roll their eyes sigh and say whatever whatever you want to do it has happened before to me there are some here who can testify to that 
And for the Israelites, it might be because they are in a, maybe just they're in a gigantic collective meat coma at this point. They had their victory, Saul got his sacrifice in, and then, like he said, they got to eat. So there may have been a, a wee bit of gluttony at this feast, similar to my visits to any Brazilian steakhouse. And uh, I've been to a few. In fact, this is a picture of a barbecue in Brazil in the Amazon jungle, which is just amazing. I mean, I, I don't know where they got all this meat, but they're just throwing piles and piles of meat on the table as we finished up our week of training there. It was awesome. And uh, there's nothing. Well, the only South Africa... Um, has a pretty good barbecue as well. Um, so if you're ever looking for a good barbecue, Brazil, South Africa, those are your two spots I would recommend. Israelites had a good one too, it seems like. Saul wants the victory, but the people just seem less than enthusiastic to continue. So enter the priest who seeks to mediate the stalemate. The people don't seem so enthusiastic. Paul's ready to go, or Saul's ready to go um, here all of a sudden. So verse 36, the priest said, well, let's draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer that day. Now, if you remember from last week's episode, this wasn't a good priest that Saul had with him in his posse. This was a dude named Ahijah, whose uncle was a guy named Ichabod, which means departed glory. That's not an accident. Ahijah is the priest here. His great uncle was a guy named Phineas. Excellent cartoon character, but an evil, evil priest in this context. Just a bad dude. And his line continued in that. Saul's in-house priest in his camp is from a disqualified line. Samuel's nowhere to be found, so Saul takes the next best thing, Ahijah, who's probably not the greatest guy to have on the team. And here he seems like he's making an honorable suggestion. Let's draw near to God here, he says. That that sounds like something a priest should say, right? But Saul's job repeatedly has been to rid the country of the enemies of God's people. And it might be possible here that the priest is actually counseling counter to the will of God with spiritual-sounding phrases. He may have been happier... The priest might have been happier just sharing that bottle of pomegranate juice with Saul than hunting down stray Philistines. Listen, there's a way to, um, to sound really spiritual with certain lines, but in reality, we're actually avoiding any sensitivity to the Lord's leading or his commands. Saul, taking advice from this disqualified priest, seeks to discern the Lord's will. But God's will has likely been made very clear here. Jonathan knew it. So that's why he was up there attacking on the commando raid earlier. And now, when all there is left to do is a bit of mopping up, Saul effectively leads his people, at the advice of the bad priest, to slow down. Let's make sure we're doing the right thing. Let us draw near to God here. I had a buddy in seminary. I cannot remember the guy's name. Uh, so he wasn't that big of a buddy, I guess. But I had a guy in seminary who was an acquaintance who, rather than say no to people when asked to do something he didn't want to do, would say, I'll pray about it. Uh, and he would do it kind of tongue-in-cheek so you knew he wasn't really going to pray about it, but he was just saying no. He was using a nice spiritual-sounding phrase to get out of doing something that he didn't want to do. I'll pray about it. How can you argue with that? Like, uh, well, you don't need to pray. You need, no, you need to help me move on Saturday, right? You can't say that. I mean, he wants to pray about it. You're stuck there, right? Now, I must confess to personally repeating this brilliant tactic from time to time, but a spiritual-sounding line is sometimes used to avoid something that the Lord has clearly called people to do. We can do that, right? We can do that. Let's say, here's an example. We have a clear call as a church and as God's people to be evangelistic disciple makers, to go into the world and make disciples, to tell people about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Crystal clear throughout the scriptures. But sometimes, and unfortunately often, churches and Christians will say, well, we need to make sure that our house is in order, that we're sufficiently covered in prayer for this before we actually... Talk to people about Jesus. Don't use one spiritual activity to avoid obeying God in something that's clear. 
And that seems what Saul does here with the advice of the priest. Saul makes an inquiry then, likely through the priest, and God doesn't respond. When a king needed an answer from God to a question like, should we pursue the Philistines or should we stay here feasting and drinking? He would summon the priest. And on the priest's garment were 12 stones, and two of those stones would have been the umim and the thumim. I think I got my pronunciation in the ballpark there. The king would ask a yes or no question. Should we do A or B? Or should we do this? Yes or no? And the priest would likely blindly select a stone which gave the king his answer. Black for yes, white for no, or something like that. All this comes with a bit of speculation. The details are not really 100% spelled out in scripture. But this was a decision-making process that would happen in ancient Israel. The important thing here is that in some way, somehow, God doesn't speak. He gives no word or revelation to Saul on how to proceed, which really shouldn't surprise us. We remember that because of Saul's disobedience, he'd been told by Samuel the prophet that your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So here's the situation then. Jonathan has been cursed because of his father's flippant use of vows. The Israelites have sinned in their post-battle blood feast, and God is silent. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Saul looks for someone to blame. Verse 39, And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. We don't know that Saul knew that Jonathan ate the honey at this time. It, you could probably make an argument either way. So, but here's Saul gathering the people, and he says, there's sin in the camp. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. We're going to purge the evil from the camp. But, the scripture says, there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, whatever, again, do what seems good to you, they say. Therefore, Saul said, so you get all the Israelites over on one side, Saul and Jonathan standing separate from them. Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. We're down to two really quickly. Cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. This is is kind of brutal to follow in the story, isn't it? It would seem to this point that Saul doesn't know who's to blame, and in his haste, he just starts to dig a deeper hole. Somebody violated my oath. We're going to find out who it is. Even if it's Jonathan, my son, we're going to kill him, get rid of evil, and then we'll have victory and clarity and the word from God, maybe even. So the sorting begins reminiscent of Achan in the book of Joshua. It's this whodunit scene as the detective narrows it down. And, of course, the butler in this case is Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan on one side, the rest of the Israelites on the other side. Then Saul and Jonathan are picked. Saul on one side, Jonathan on the other. And then Jonathan's picked and as a father, I try to imagine how this would feel. My son, my son, oh no, my boy, my boy, what have you done? Saul seems heartless here, though. Perhaps even somewhat delighted in having someone to blame for God's silence other than himself. Verse 43. Then Saul, dad, said to son, Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. It's brutal. It's brutal. I mean, how awful is this? There's a similar scene in the book of Genesis when Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac as a test of his faith. It's a hard, hard scene, but there's a sense of anguish in that scene as the narrative slowly moves up the mountain and as God 
praise God, interrupts the sacrifice with the provision of an alternative. There's a, a sense of, of pain and agony, and there's nothing like that in Saul here. There's no sense of anguish or hesitation in Saul. There's no sadness or sorrow. Jonathan seems to bravely accept his fate. If this is what it takes for the Israelite people to have victory, then if I must be sacrificed, so be it. I will die. And Saul almost seems delighted to have someone to blame other than himself for God's silence. It's a horrible, horrible scene. Thankfully, at the last minute, the people revolt. Verse 45, then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Well, this is nothing short of treason here. Saul's the king, and the people say, you're not going to do what you just said. We're going to stop you. And here's what the people state. They state, Jonathan worked this great salvation. Jonathan worked with God this day. And by implication, the people are saying, Saul, you did nothing. You did nothing but drink the pomegranate juice under the shade tree. What a bold thing to say to your king. And in so many cases, it would result in some sort of retribution. But when the people stand up in a unified voice to Saul's foolish stubbornness and his willingness to have his own son killed, Saul and the Philistines in verse 46 just kind of fade into the background for a moment. Treason, in one way. The text goes on and gives a summary of Saul's reign in the next few verses. In verse 52, we're told that there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. He drafted him into his army. When Saul was chosen as king, this was the exact thing that the Israelites were warned of. He's going to take your young men. And here Saul gathers all the strong men who haven't been killed by Philistines to himself to join his army and he engages in a never-ending battle with the Philistines. All the days, hard fighting. This is a bit of a strange story here, isn't it? There's a temptation to kind of look at this vow and the result, the curse, and all this kind of stuff, and to kind of moralize it and say, well, clearly, you know, we're not supposed to take oaths lightly or make vows without thinking, and we've seen that in... Leviticus and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And the scriptures do have a lot of caution for God's people against hastily made vows. Saul and many of us could heed the encouragement to let our words be few. But there's more going on in this passage. It's part of a string, a series of bad decisions, of sinful decisions, of stupid choices that Saul continues to make. The Israelites are longing for a king who will lead them to victory and freedom. And Saul, at this point, is clearly not that guy. Well, is it Jonathan then? He's the crown prince, but Saul's line has been said to have ended. So will there be someone else? At this point in the story, we don't know. A big piece of this episode is Saul's continued slide into rebellion. And as a result, God is not with him. The descent into darker and darker sin is increasingly ugly in Saul's life and unfortunately in many of our lives. It blinds people to the foolishness and horror and the result of their actions. And it won't be too long before Saul is in league with witches. People need a righteous king, a wise king, a good king. Saul is not it. He's a foil in the plot here. He serves as a counterexample. Maybe it's Jonathan. Maybe it's David who's coming up. Maybe it's one of David's descendants. And the answer, as you read your Bibles in its entirety, is that a descendant of David, who came approximately 1,000 years later, born to a woman named Mary, was that king. No mere human can be the king that the people need, that we need. 
that role is reserved ultimately for God. And thankfully, thankfully, after failed king, after failed king, after failed king, including David, the man after God's own heart, God himself enters this world and proclaims the coming kingdom. Jesus says, Jesus, who is God, says the kingdom is at hand. And by implication, I'm the king. I'm the king you need. He then identifies with the people and ransoms a people for himself through his death and resurrection. Listen, we have that better king. We have that better king who will return for his people and rule eternally one day. There is a temptation when God seems absent, like in this story, in the story before, there's a temptation to take matters into our own hands, even ignoring God's explicit commands. When God seems absent, Saul continues to take matters into his own hands in preparing for battle, in sacrificing after the battle, and even holding to a suspect oath. Thankfully, Jonathan, who is a righteous savior in this passage, is preserved. In this episode, there's something beautiful hinted at, but not fully fleshed out in the story. There's a son who is technically innocent. I mean, Jonathan, in this case, is just as pure as the driven snow. He's, he's good. He's powerful. He's a warrior. He's innocent. But there's also a son who bears a curse, an innocent son who bears a curse. And that curse comes because of his father. And finally, there's a princely son who, against all odds, survives to be with his people. Now, that's a pretty hazy picture there. But if you look closely, what do you see? You see a little bit of Jesus there, don't you? The details, of course, don't match up one for one, but there's a noticeable foreshadowing of a greater son who will bear the curse of the father so that he can reign with his people forever. God became man so that he could bear our guilt and our curse. Both Jonathan and later Jesus willingly accept this position of cursed for the good and the salvation of God's people. Sadly. Sadly, Jonathan will never ascend to the throne he seems so perfectly positioned to assume. And thankfully, Jesus sits on a heavenly throne, having fully conquered his enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He bore the curse our sin deserved, even became the curse, so that in him we might be forgiven. We are now righteous sons and daughters of God because our king bore our curse. Saul tried to blame someone else for the curse. Even his own son, God the Father, placed our curse on his son, Jesus, so that we could be with him through the work on the cross and resurrection. When we moved to Minnesota in 2005, I made a rash vow. In a moment of weakness, when I felt guilty about uprooting my family from our home in Verona, Wisconsin, I promised my two boys that they would each get a dog. My hastiness and guilt led to their gain, and so we wound up with Trixie and Ember. Trixie we still have, and she's an absolute delight. In fact, she's one of my top two dogs, rivaling my legendary dog, Kibbles, who I had when I was in junior high. At times, God does give grace when we don't think things out fully. But Ember was a disaster. One of the more stupid, uncontrollable dogs I've ever known. I mean, she bit people and animals and tore up everything. She tore up anything if it was between her and her food. She, could, she was well, kind of like me at the zigzag inn. She just could not stop from anything. We still literally bear the scars from my rash vow and Ember's teeth. I know she looks all cute in the picture, and some of you are like, oh, but she was demonic, okay? Time and nice pictures heal all wounds and memories. Saul's vow perhaps warns us against such unconsidered promises. But when I think of my unconsidered, knee-jerk promise to my sons, I sometimes think of a greater promise, one made by someone far greater and far more faithful and far wiser than I am. 
The God of the universe vowed, he made a promise to his people that he would dwell eternally with them. That was not a rash vow he regretted after the implications became clear. It was one he faithfully and joyfully fulfilled through his son's death and resurrection. And because that vow, that promise was faithfully fulfilled, we know that all his promises in Christ are absolute yeses. God was absent from Saul. God will never leave us or forsake us. While vows hastily made, ne'er end well, there is an exception. The vow made by God from the beginning of the Bible, which was not hastily made, to the end of the Bible, that promise continues. It's repeated in various ways hundreds of times throughout God's interactions with his people. And here's how it's stated in one of them in Deuteronomy 31. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. God did not make this promise rashly. He honored it throughout the Old Testament. He honored it in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. He honors it with the gift of his spirit to his church. God is with us, and he will honor it one day in his return. And then, as John's vision states, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Our God fulfills his promises, which he did not lightly lightly make. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think through this passage, it reminds us of the many promises that you have made in your word. And doesn't take a long time to find those promises and to find themes of those promises like the one that we just thought about. You will be with us. You will accomplish that. So, Father, we thank you that unlike those who make hasty vows and unlike those who get themselves into dire situations because of their stupidity and sin, you have not made a hasty vow. You have made a promise, a covenant to your people that you will be with them, that you will reign eternally, that you will save and bring them to yourself. And Father, we long for that promise to come true. We long for it. So Father, as we think about this passage, may you draw our thoughts to the faithfulness of Christ, to the faithfulness of you and your word. Help us to know you and understand you and worship you. So these things we pray. Amen.